Well, good morning and welcome to Hudson Institute. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson, and delighted to welcome everyone uh, to today's conference. And uh, let me just, uh, at the absolute outset, note for those of you who haven't been here for a few weeks, we've actually now gone through a new logo of Hudson, and we have a brand new redone website, which uh, we're all quite proud of at www.hudson.org. So I urge all of you to look at it. Lots of uh, articles on the situation uh, in Ukraine. Uh, we're especially pleased to be doing this conference uh, with the uh, Danube Institute and our former colleague and very good friend, John O'Sullivan, about whom I'll have uh, a few words uh, in a moment. Uh, and we're honored uh, uh, by the uh, presence of uh, Ambassador Zaspari up, uh, of uh, Hungary uh, here uh, with us uh, uh, this morning, as well as uh, David Satter uh, of uh, Hudson and also of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, a great hero, the first American journalist to be expelled from Russia since the end of the Cold War. And we're also honored to have uh, under, former Undersecretary of State uh, Paula Dobryansky with us, a great leader in the fight against communism and uh, someone who's been omnipresent uh, in the media and everywhere in the last uh, week or so as uh, the situation has, un last couple of weeks, as the situation has unfolded in Ukraine. Let me simply say by a uh, brief introduction, the Russian invasion of Crimea is certainly the most disturbing action Russia has taken on the European continent since its invasion of uh, Georgia six years ago, but arguably since its invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. This shocking action is, as all of us know, a wanton violation of the sovereignty of a democratic nation, military aggression that stands in violation of the Helsinki Final Act and the UN Charter, the flimsy pretext for which it was undertaken, protecting Russian-speaking minorities uh, in Ukraine, now raises the specter, as my colleague uh, Doug Feith has written in the Wall Street Journal, of Russian intervasions in numerous uh, nations, especially NATO ones, uh, particularly in the Baltics, for the same reason. This crisis poses an immense challenge to the transatlantic alliance, divided as it is among those who would prefer more vigorous action against the Russians, while others prefer a slower and, shall we say, more diplomatic engagement uh, to handle the matter. Uh, we, those of us who have followed the situation closely here in Washington uh, and who are quite concerned about the, the fate of uh, this region of the world have also, I should note, been disturbed for some time by... Uh, rather weak and at times vacillating American policy uh, towards Russia that has emerged uh, since 2009. What are the levers that the West has at its disposal at this time? Is it even appropriate to speak of the West divided as we are uh, under an Obama presidency that has failed to make the moral case for the transatlantic alliance? And what in particular is the legacy of the former Soviet bloc states of Middle Europa, the Visegrad nations whose historical memory of Russian invasion remains quite vivid. Uh, to examine these and other, pro other questions, we have an all-star lineup uh, with us today for a very comprehensive program and one that in particular will focus on what the states of Central Europe can do uh, in the midst of this uh, enormous crisis. That being said, by way of introduction, I'm uh, Honored, delighted to introduce my friend and former colleague, John O'Sullivan, who now directs the Danube Institute in Budapest. John needs no introduction in Washington. 
former speechwriter and aide to the late British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. John is uh, editor-at-large at the National Review, former vice president and executive editor at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and as we all know, a brilliant observer of culture, international affairs, and politics in his uh, columns uh, that we get to read in uh, the National Post, uh, the National Review, and uh, many other fine publications. And so with uh, that, let me uh, turn it over to John, and let's give him a warm welcome. Well, th thank you very much, Ken. And um, on behalf of the Danube Institute, uh, let me welcome everyone here to this conference as well. It, it is, of course, for me a great personal pleasure to be back at Hudson, not only because of the kind words that Ken del delivered about me just a moment ago, but also because I spent um, uh, three very happy years here as a senior fellow, uh, happy unproductive years. It was here uh, where I wrote my book on um, the, the Pope, the President, and the Prime Minister, about Reagan, Thatcher, and the Pope, and the role they played in bringing down communism and establishing um, a new world fairly peacefully. It's a great pity that that new world now seems to be somewhat less peaceful and more contested than we thought only a few years ago. But it's obviously something which um, institutes like Hudson and like the Danube Institute will have to turn our attention to very seriously. Now, I'll just say a few words about the Danube Institute. Since most of you won't know about us, we are very new. Uh, we are based in Budapest, although we cover really the whole of Central Europe, and we have three purposes. We aim to be a center for debate between conservatives and classical liberals uh, in Central Europe. Uh, we aim, secondly, to be a focus of debate uh, between conservatives and classical liberals on the one hand and their democratic opponents on the other. We tend to feel that uh, in the region we're talking about, there's too much partisanship and not enough debate. And we think that the way towards a more, uh, less partisanship rather, is a more open, generous, and, um, and uh, uh, connected debate between all parties. And as I say, that's our second purpose. <coughs> our third is we want to provide a transmission belt for ideas and for arguments and for people from Central Europe to Western Europe and the English-speaking world in particular, obviously, to the United States and North America. And this conference is, from one standpoint at least, an example of that new uh, transmission belt, and we, we hope for great things from it. Now, the genesis of this conference uh, really emerged in the very first instance from a conversation that Ambassador Zapri and I had at our very first conference in, in Budapest. And that uh, was a, an agreement that the developments in Central Europe of a hopeful kind, namely uh, movements towards greater cooperation between the countries and the Visegrad Four, um, the movements by uh, the European uh, Union uh, to develop a stronger uh, partnership uh, with uh, Eastern and Central Europe, um, and new ideas like the Carpathian Initiative um, deserved greater attention. In, in other words, our initial impulse was a relatively hopeful one to draw attention in um, Western Europe and the United States uh, to the somewhat the greater cooperation that was developing How we, in that region. Now, we saw this in relation to the Ukraine crisis, which was at then, at a relatively early stage, in a rather hopeful way, what, asking ourselves what way could this new cooperation help to avert a crisis in the Ukraine that was developing. Well, of course, um, that our conference is taking place after the crisis has become far more acute, and I 
would like to just associate myself with the description of that crisis and the criticism of Russian behavior that Ken Weinstein just advanced. Um, but the result of it has been, of course, that we've been redesigning the conference almost daily to take account <laughs> of the new uh, developments. And, uh, and I think we have done so very successfully, and I'm looking forward to this morning. Now, having said that, I think a sensible thing for me to do, since I'm an observer rather than an expert on the Ukraine, is uh, to say a few words introducing my old colleague David Satter and then depart the stage. Um, David, uh, I have known for about 25 years. Um, I met him first when he was the Financial Times correspondent in Moscow. He's since been a correspondent there for the, for the Wall Street Journal as well. Uh, he has written a number of powerful and important books about the end of communism and the development of the new kind of state and society, which is neither capitalist uh, nor communist, but well, it has kleptocratic elements and authoritarian elements, and I suspect um, I'm waiting for David's next book to get a complete analysis of, of the new kind of post-Soviet Russian society that is emerging. But it is certainly not the society we hoped would emerge. Now, secondly, uh, David has not only written powerful books on this question, but he is the, um, um, the well, I suppose the only begetter of an important film which recently won the um, uh, documentary award at the Amsterdam Film Festival. I'm particularly happy to mention this film, The Age of Delirium, based upon his book, because I played the role of a godfather in helping <laughs> to bring it to life. Um, he found himself at a certain stage of the process um, um, without, uh, uh, without the production facilities he needed to complete it. And we at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, were very happy, as I was, was then there, uh, to help him to do that. And that's a powerful film. I, if you haven't seen it, I urge you to try to do so. And David will perhaps mention where you can. But having said that, I think we're getting in, David, somebody who has an intimate knowledge, a deep knowledge, um, and a very um, unique perspective on the development of, of, of the of the Russian state, and he brings, he comes directly, so to speak, hot foot, like a good journalist from Ukraine, from Kiev, from the Maidan, where he witnessed some of the events that began this latest acute phase of the Ukraine crisis. I look forward to what he has to say and to learning from it. David Satter. Well, thanks, John, and thanks to all of you for coming. Uh, are the microphones working? Are they? Yes? Okay. Um, the, uh, it is true that I'm, I'm recently from Ukraine and recently, in fact, from Russia, where I was expelled as a correspondent uh, and have the honor of being the first, uh, Western co first American correspondent expelled from Russia since the end of the Cold War. The... Um, both Ukraine and Russia uh, share, a, as we know, share a, the, the heritage of communism, which uh, in its essence, I think, resulted in the destruction of a sense of individual morality. Uh, the idea that the individual is responsible for his actions, that he's capable of moral judgment, that he ought to be guided in what he does by that judgment. Uh, this may seem, on the one hand, uh, like a very mundane and obvious observation, 
Uh, and on the other hand, uh, as a, rather an irrelevant one, but in fact it's neither, because it's the key, I think, to understanding what's going on in Ukraine now. It's the key to understanding the Russian reaction to, the, to what's happening in Ukraine. What ha after the fall of the Soviet Union, the entire region underwent a dramatic change in economic structures. We witnessed in a very short time the transition from a state uh, run and state-owned economy to uh, a, an economy in which there was a form of private ownership. But the transitional process was flawed. It wasn't guided by law, and it was certainly not guided by any moral considerations. The result was that what took place in many of the former Soviet republics many of the countries which emerged from the Soviet Union was really an intensive process of negative selection in which the, the, the most ruthless, the most unethical, the, the, the greediest, and the most cunning rose to the top. This was the case in Russia, and it was the case in Ukraine. The uh, result of this situation is that the necessary moral revolution that needed to take place after the fall of communism, because communism was, in a way, an exercise in moral sterilization, People were told that uh, the only thing that really mattered was the judgment of the party. And under those circumstances, there really was no, ro no role for individual conscience. And it was in this atmosphere of moral confusion that uh, both Ukraine and Russia failed to establish the rule of law. The... Uh, situation with Viktor Yanukovych, the recently overthrown president of Ukraine, absolutely exemplified this situation. Uh, in a, in a, a society in, without values uh, and without any kind of strong moral orientation, greed is the only driver of, of behavior. And the, the leaders in the post-Soviet world, and certainly Yanukovych typified this, could, could think of nothing better to do with themselves than simply to, to steal, to accumulate, to rob, to make sure that under no circumstances could they ever be driven, f removed from office. Yanukovych became one of the richest people in the world, and he did so by abusing the, by using the the uh, institutions of the state in order to appropriate property, he came into power after uh, uh, elections, which, although dubious by the standards of the region, were relatively legitimate because there were no very visible uh, and egregious. Uh, uh, examples of falsification that could be put on the internet, uh, which isn't to say that they didn't take place. But none. But once in power, uh, he began to rule in a totally lawless manner. The uh, institutions of the state were used uh, by Yanukovych and by the members of his family in order to simply redistribute distribute the property that had been distributed, albeit also unfairly, in the first wave of privatization in Ukraine.
The difference in this case was if the previous privatization had produced a slew of unethical oligarchs, now the Yanukovych phase two privatization in Ukraine was, attempt, was an attempt to concentrate enormous wealth in the hands of Yanukovych's personal cronies and the members of his family. And the leader of this effort was Yanukovych's own son, Alexander, a, for, a dentist with no previous business experience who in three years became a multi-billionaire. When Yanukovych was asked how it was possible that the young man uh, who had uh, n no previous connection to, to big business, had become so wealthy so fast, he said he's just very talented. Mm. Well, the secret to his talent was, was very clear to everybody in Ukraine. Uh, the uh, administrative apparatus of the, of, of the country was used against, was turned against anyone who refused to sell out or hand over their business at a dictated price. Uh, the scenario which, re which was repeated again and again was that representatives of Yanukovych, of his family, of his cronies, of his son, his son, all, son is apparently a sociable guy, he has a lot of, he has some, a, a circle of friends who also engage in these practices, would, would offer a price usually far below the fair market price for a business. Uh, the businessman in question would be led to understand that it was in his best interest to sell at that price. If he refused, then the process began of forcing him to sell. The first stage of the process was to send the uh, sanitation inspector, fire inspector, the police, the tax, tax inspectors to find violations, uh, which they... Uh, uh, which they did without difficulty, both real and imaginary violations, and imposed fines so draconian that it would be impossible to stay in business. And if that wasn't enough to convince the businessman that you know, that he, he was best off uh, complying with the uh, conditions that were suggested to him, uh, he could be uh, simply arrested on trumped-up charges. Result was that the the biggest that the all the, that the biggest oligarchs in uh, Ukraine were Yanukovych's the members of Yanukovych's family or his cronies or those like uh, Renat Akhmetov who had been a traditional oligarch but uh, who 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 rose up out of the uh, organized crime environment in the Donetsk Oblast and was Yanukovych's early sponsor. What this meant for the average citizen was that no one could be secure because the, con the very conditions that were necessary in order to make it possible for this uh, concentration, this rapid concentration of wealth in the hands of those who exercise political power also meant that there could be no reliable legal mechanism sufficient to protect the rights of individuals. So they were too, we, so what we saw in Ukraine was the same thing that exists in Russia, just, like, just as two sides of one coin. On the one hand, the massive uh, and seemingly endless uh, accumulation of wealth by those with political power and the lack of legal rights and lack of legal protections uh, of those who 
who uh, lack that power. In Ukraine, there were a couple of very dramatic episodes which illustrated for people what, what this meant. Two women, two separate cases, but nonetheless very similar, were uh, abducted, raped, and, and savagely beaten. One of the women died. In, they, these were in provincial areas, not outside of Kiev, but the whole country heard about them heard about these cases. In the one instance, the victims were, uh, the victim, or rather, I'm sorry, the perpetrators were members of the local police force. In the other instance, they were uh, children of the local elite. But the what the cases illustrated for everyone was that the authorities are free to do anything they want, and no one has, no one has any protection against them. In the months that preceded the uh, decision on November 30th not to sign an association agreement with the European community, it was widely expected in Ukraine that Ukraine would, in fact, affiliate. And Yanukovych and his uh, entourage gave repeated indications that that was the path that was going to be pursued. And then suddenly on November 30th, uh, it was announced not only that there would be no association agreement, but also uh, there, there was no uh, announcement of uh, an effort to negotiate new terms, creating the impression for the whole country that Yanukovych had simply decided that his previous commitments, his previous assurances, uh, were in no way binding upon him. He could change his mind for whatever reason he liked. And uh, the country as a whole, which had been led expectantly uh, in that, uh, to hope that uh, uh, the association agreement would be signed, uh, the opinion of, 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 of the nation was of no importance. The young demonstrators who were in the Maidan on November, the night of November 30th were there uh, at the, at, as the tail end of demonstrations that had, been, that had taken place to support what was called Ukraine's European choice. And there were only a small number of them who were still there. And their intention was actually not uh, to protest against anything, but uh, to, to lend their support for what they thought would be the decision to associate with the European Union. In the end, they were savagely attacked by, uh, by the police, by the, by the uh, riot police, and took um, refuge in the Mikhailovsky uh, Cathedral, which the, the last time they, the cathedral offered re refuge in a similar manner was when the Mongols attacked Kiev and people fled to that monastery. The um, combination of the disappointment over the rejection of the European Union and uh, uh, the association agreement, rather, and the the, the unprovoked beating of the young students is what, what, what set in motion the Maidan protests. But the, the background for it 
was years of insecurity that was felt by ordinary citizens uh, in a situation in which the entire society was designed to enrich of the very few and in which there were really no protections for anyone. Anyone in Ukraine could, f could, could imagine that he could be picked up, taken to a police station, beaten, and, and uh, find himself without any recourse at all. And he could understand perfectly well that any business that he started could be taken away from him at a, mom at, at a moment's notice. The, the uh, depredations of Oleksandr Yanukovych, I'm talking now about Yanukovych's son, were such that many people started going around taking over businesses saying that they were from Alexander when in fact they didn't even know him and had no connection to him. The brand was sufficiently powerful that people or you know ha hearing that no longer wanted to fight. Well, what does all this <coughs> what does all this mean for Russia? Because we we really face a situation now in which Russia and Ukraine, countries that maybe were not at the absolute center of uh, our attention in the U.S. Uh, for much of the previous 20 years, are now uh, very, very important and, uh, this, and actually a threat to, uh, to world stability and European stability. The same type of regime exists in Russia. The takeover of property, the appropriation of people's enterprises, that began in earnest in Russia in 2003 after the arrest of Mikhail Khodorkovsky. The, uh, when, the when officials at all levels in Russia witnessed how easy it was to take over the biggest oil company, the biggest, most successful, and most Western-oriented oil company in the country using administrative means and... Uh, abuse of the legal process, uh, the, it, the, it was, uh, the, the, the experience was repeated at all levels of the government. It was repeated at the Oblast level, it was repeated at the Republic level, it was repeated at the Rayon level. And uh, so nothing that, is good, that, that was done by Yanukovych was in any way strange or different or uh, incompatible with what was being done in Russia. But at the same time, the Russian authorities understand perfectly well, and they understand it better than the Western observers who've been commenting on this question in many cases, that the example of Ukraine could be contagious. They, uh, it's been said that 75%, and this is true, the poll results, the latest poll results said that in Russia uh, showed that 75% of Russians don't believe that the Ukrainian experience can be repeated in Russia. But it's also important to bear in mind that the history of Russian opinion polls is such that, and of Russian public opinion is such, that, uh, that those numbers can change uh, overnight and very dramatically. Uh, it, does, it doesn't pay to put too much stock in where uh, people pronounce themselves at any given time, plus the fact they don't trust the pollsters. But um, what you had in Ukraine was, on the one hand, 
long-standing resentment over the lawlessness and, and the greed of the authorities. That exists in Russia. You had uh, a specific situation which galvanized people, i.e., the refusal to uh, sign the association agreement. In Russia, you had something similar with the uh, falsification of the December 2011 parliamentary elections, which also brought 100,000 people out into the streets, although the demonstrations eventually fizzled. Um, and finally, you had a spark. The spark was the beating of the students. Well, right now there's no spark in Russia, and there's no specific uh, issue around which people can rally. But both of those can be supplied, and the, the nature of these lawless systems is such that they will be supplied, and the Russian authorities know it. That's why they've reacted to the Ukrainian situation in the way they have. One, for, one way in which the um, reaction has uh, taken place is in the suppression of free speech. Uh, I can even mention my own case in this regard because uh, it was, as I look back on the events that led to my expulsion from Russia, it's important to bear in mind that the Russians had long bragged to Western correspondents that uh, when they objected to their coverage, as they did on, at various times, that uh, nobody has ever been expelled from Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. We don't do that anymore. So it was a point of pride that Russia was sufficiently self-confident that even the most odious correspondence and the most undesirable were nonetheless tolerated. And no one, I was not often mentioned by name, but a c couple of people uh, pointed out to me Russian, Russia, Russia, connect, persons connected to the Russian authorities that you see how liberal they even give you visas. In any case, there the with the uh, with the intensification of the situation in Ukraine, I think the uh, the cost benefit analysis changed, and they decided that in fact it uh, I was uh, more than they were prepared to tolerate. But uh, it wasn't the only case. It wasn't the only case. Uh, there have been there there has been a crackdown on TV Rain, the internet television station, which is uh, watched by the intelligentsia and uh, lib liberal intelligentsia in Moscow, and uh, the firing of the chief editor at Echo Moskvi, an event which is m actually quite important and will have long range implications. The, uh, there were mass arrests when demonstrators protested the sentences in the Bolotny case. These were the, the persons who were arrested and charged for their uh, participation in a demonstration after Putin was elected to his third term as president. And now as we see the attempt to rally uh, support for the regime by appealing to Russian chauvinism, through the seizure of Crimea, the threats against Ukraine, and the predictable attempts 
that I believe we're going to see to create chaos in Ukraine in order to discredit the new government there and render uh, and deliver an implicit warning to the Russian people that uh, any such attempt to free themselves from the criminal oligarchy that runs the country will lead to nothing good. The uh, referendum that is scheduled for Crimea on Sunday is almost certain to bring uh, a vote in favor of joining uh, Russia. That should not be taken seriously for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, it's important to bear in mind that the overwhelming uh, support in Crimea was for the party of the regions previous to this to these events. Party of the regions uh, is Yanukovych's party. It's corrupt. It's a uh, uh, it's an organized gang. Uh, in the form of a political party. Nonetheless, its platform was for the unity of the country. Unity, the secession from, from, uh, from Crimea was not an issue except among fringe groups in Crimea until this began. It's only under the impact of the situation, including the takeover of the parliament by unidentified troops, that it is being posed. And it's under these circumstances that uh, people may, I including Russian eth ethnic Russians, may well vo vote to join uh, the Russian uh, to join Russia. I don't like the term Russian Federation, Russian Federation, because the Russians like that term, and it's not a federation if you appoint all the governors. I don't. I never heard of such a federation, but they love to call themselves Russian Federation instead of something else, Russian dictatorship or something else. But. Um, the, uh, equally important, the um, uh, the elections in Russia itself are fa are falsified. There's a strong criminal element in Crimea. The no no reason to believe these elections are going to be any more honest than elections that take place in Russia. The can anything be done about this situation? Uh, Many people have, have argued, including uh, some observers of Russia who are, who are normally quite perceptive, that this is a done deal, that Russia has seized Ukraine, that there's, I mean, I'm sorry, seized Crimea, that uh, this is irreversible. Uh, some have even argued that this is historic Russian territory. And all, although the... the, the the borders of, of Ukraine have been recognized in, in numerous international undertakings by Russia. But um, I don't believe it's true. Uh, all of these regimes are extremely fragile. The Russian regime is much more fragile than people understand. Those, those who run it uh, keep their assets in the West and their families in the West, their mistresses in the West, they've got, uh, and they have they have foreign passports. One of the one of the characteristic uh, consumer items for those who run the sh run the show in Russia is a private airplane. Uh, you, the uh, those who sell private airplanes have a big big business in Russia.
And it's there, first of all, as a status item. Everyone likes to show that if their neighbor, if their competitor can afford a, a, an airplane, so can they, and then they compete with, with they don't care about the technical or the technical characteristics or the safety, simply the prestige of the plane and the fact that they can use it to make a quick getaway if they need to, because they fear each other more than they fear the West. Uh, you know, half of the people in the Russian in the in the Russian ruling group uh, have in the back of their minds where they're going to go if things get hot for them, as they got for Yanukovych and his cohorts. So therefore, the West has enormous leverage. Uh, and uh, money, the, the money that has poured into the West has, all, has almost without exception been laundered. Uh, and m a huge amount of it uh, from Russian sources is the result of criminal activity. Simply enforcing the money laundering laws, tight, you know, extending the Magnitsky list, and making it clear that they're going that the Russian authorities are going to have to live with their own lawlessness will, would be it would be enough to bring tremendous pressure to bear on the Russian authorities uh, and to remind them that the whole world has uh, an interest in the integrity of borders on the one hand and in avoiding any kind of chaos in that in either Ukraine, which is a very important country and a very big one, and particularly in Russia, which has nuclear weapons. So therefore, in closing, I don't think the situation is hopeless. It's important to understand what is going on, that this is an effort on the part of Russia to protect the, the criminal oligarchic regime. And it's a, another example of the dangers of the status quo. Some may argue that we should just leave things as they are, because the alternative is uh, is instability, and it could well be. They've tried to create those conditions, but the status quo is also dangerous, and we've had a had had a vivid example of that. Anyway, I unfortunately have to 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 leave, so I won't be able to to go any further with this. But thank you very much for your attention. I can maybe add one or two. If there are questions, maybe I can take one or two before I have to. I'm going to Ohio, uh, um, and I have to get there. But do, if anyone has a, any questions uh, in response to what I've said, I'll try to answer them briefly. Yes, please. <laughs> Uh, Terry Campo, just an attorney uh, here in town that worked in Russia. Uh, David, I wonder if you would agree with the characterization that part of what's happened in Russia and Ukraine is they've created the version of capitalism that the communists taught capitalism was. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true, and there's a and that that's not an a, that's not an accident because they were they were they grew up on on on. They were raised on novels which showed the depravity of, com of capitalism, and then overnight they were told that capitalism, which had, their whole lives had been, they had been told was bad, was actually good. Mm -hmm. That meant that criminality was also good. And uh, been, it was drummed into the he head of every, every kid who grew up, every person who grew up in the Soviet Union, that the first stage of capitalism is the criminal accumulation of wealth. 
Now, since 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 capitalism, <laughs> since capitalism is now, then they were told that capitalism is the wave of the future. So it followed that they had a an, a moral obligation to steal and kill, and then they and they fulfilled that obligation. Uh, anybody else? Well, ah, you're in. Hi. Reuters just reported that Dmitro Firtash, one of the richest men in Ukraine, and the man who actually made Viktor Yanukovych has been arrested in Vienna. Wow. Do you wow. think this is the beginning of something? Wow. Uh, what I, I, I didn't realize Firtash was arrested. I, it was a, he, he, he was, I thought it was really, really Akhmetov who was uh, Yanukovych's first. But, I mean, they were all, yeah. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Well, Lazarenko was arrested. A uh, former pr- pr- prime minister and uh, bo- in Ukraine and boss of uh, Yulia Tymoshenko. It what? Oh, it's not confirmed. Well, of course. Let's then. In that case, who knows? Who knows what it what 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 it means? But I'm sure there's plenty to arrest him for. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone. Thank you very much. David, thank you very much indeed. And now I'd like to introduce uh, Ambassador George Chapery, who is the Hungarian ambassador to the United States, who will in turn introduce uh, our keynote speaker, Polo Dobriansky, this morning. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, this conference owes its genesis in a conversation between myself and the ambassador, um, which, in which we both felt that what was happening in Central Europe was extremely important to the United States and to Western Europe, but that it wasn't receiving the attention that it deserved and, and that it needed. Now, um, as I mentioned also, this, the Ukraine evolution of the crisis has developed very dramatically differently. But uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, the ambassador because he is someone who brings to his position here in Washington an enormous amount of experience um, in international affairs. He left Hungary in 1956. Um, he became a successful economist, and he served in several uh, in senior positions in several international institutions of an economic kind. Um, he returned to Hungary after the development of uh, freedom there after 1989, and he's since played a role in a number of. He's since played an important role in public life. Um, culminating in his present position. I won't say more now because he himself will have some remarks, but let me introduce Ambassador George Sapery, uh, welcome him to the occasion, and ask him to introduce Paula, who perhaps, Paula, you would like to join us on the podium. And I think uh, Ken and I are going to... uh, Take our part in the wings. All right. <coughs> Thank you. So, <coughs> good morning, everybody. Um, <coughs> when John and I we discussed in <coughs> in um, Budapest what we should uh, what should be the topic of this conference, and we said it should be of course Central and Eastern Europe uh, because um, uh, Hungary has the uh, chairmanship of the V4 Visegrad four countries. And we were sort of discussed whether it should be talking about the crisis of economic crisis or the role of V4 in the world, etc. Uh, and then suddenly <clears throat> a topic came um, <clears throat> that gave itself, which is, which is Ukraine. So uh, that's how we are 
now today talking about Ukraine. Just let me, let me say a few words about the Visegrad four countries' role in this crisis. We have had a very active role. We had several uh, visits. The, uh, the V4 ministers of foreign affairs went to Ukraine. Uh, the V4 prime ministers uh, issued um, statements. Um, uh, more recently, the V4 ambassadors here in Washington uh, wrote a letter to uh, 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 Boehner and uh, uh, Reid to um, <clears throat> encourage uh, LNG gas exports uh, to Europe uh, because that would reduce the dependence of, uh, of these countries uh, uh, on Russian gas and it would uh, weaken uh, Russian uh, use of gas as a political tool. Now, before I introduce uh, Paula, let me, let me leave on the table a, a couple of thoughts. As it was mentioned, I left Hungary in 1956 as a, I was a high school student, and um, uh, a parallel strikes me. Uh, at that time, uh, the Russians said, or the Soviets said exactly the same thing as they said now on the people of Maidan, that the people on the streets are fascists. And then they had to be invited. They were invited by somebody. Uh, and this is why they came in to, uh, to uh, clear the streets from the fascists and, um, <clears throat> and to defend the people. So, you know, this, this parallel is, uh, is really striking. And um, <clears throat> the other thought that I wanted to leave on the, uh, on the table is uh, something that I would like to read out that Kurt Walker uh, wrote in a, in, uh, quite recently in the Time magazine, and he said that, um, so what is the key lesson here? And he goes on, Ukraine and the loss of Crimea is merely an example of a larger issue. What happens when we fail to protect and promote freedom in the world? Each individual step may seem bearable, but in the long run, these creeping assaults on freedom are deeply damaging to US, U.S. interests, and I would add to the world interest, because if the U.S. leaves a vacuum or gives the perception that there is a vacuum, then another big country that has, a, has the ambition to be, become a world power moves in, and that's what happened right now. And uh, this is a lesson for, for the United States and also for the Europe, that, um, uh, you know, we have the responsibility uh, to defend the freedom uh, of the world because if not, somebody else would, uh, would come in and fill this vacuum. Now let me introduce um, Paula. I such a long and distinguished uh, career, so I would just pick the, the ones that I think the most important ones. And I would start <clears throat> immediately with... Um, uh, <clears throat> saying that <clears throat> um, Paula finished, uh, uh, went to the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and um, afterwards uh, went to Harvard University. I mention this because the alma mater is the most important thing in one's life, isn't it? And, uh, <clears throat> and so that's, uh, that's the, I think, uh, the one that I wanted to say at the beginning. And <clears throat> right now, Paula is a senior fellow at Harvard University's JFK, Biafred Center for Science and International Affairs. And uh, <clears throat> uh, Paula had a very distinguished uh, uh, 
career in the, in the administration from 2001 to 2009. She served as the Under Secretary of State for Democracy and Global Affairs, uh, the longest serving in history in that position. Uh, <clears throat> was also in 2007 President, President Special Envoy to Northern Ireland um, and for, for her work there got the Distinguished Service Medal, which is very important. And, um, <clears throat> and I have also known Paula as a very great friend of Hungary, among other countries. And um, you also received the Hungarian um, Commander of uh, Cross Order of Merit, and very important, also the Ukraine's Order of Merit. So, Paula, the word is yours. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone, and first, thank you, Ambassador, uh, very, very much uh, for those very kind remarks and introduction. And I do want to thank uh, Ken and also John uh, for bringing us together. And it is true, by the way, uh, the, when you first contacted me, it was a different topic, by the way. <laughs> and so, so here we are. But you know, I will say, even despite that fact, Nevertheless, I think that what many of us would have said, there are certain points that would have been said then and also now, given the situation on the ground. Because I start with the fact that when you look at the crisis in Ukraine and its impact on the transatlantic alliance and also looking at uh, those countries in Central Europe and the neighborhood – you know, we're bound. We're bound by moral values. We are bound by freedom. We are bound also by a mission that, by the way, has been a bipartisan mission of U.S. administrations, and that is to obtain a Europe whole and free. And so in that sense, I think that we would have heard those messages. But let me, in my remarks, I'd like to cover a number of points some that are broader and putting this issue in context and how it in turn impacts the alliance and also uh, uh, certainly Central Europe, but also looking at the developments in Ukraine itself. The current crisis in Ukraine definitely has ramifications, not just only for the neighborhood, meaning certainly for Central Europe, for Europe as a whole, and of course, of course for uh, Ukraine itself, but, you know, this crisis has global ramifications, which we need to step back and take stock of. How the West handles, in fact, Russia's aggression will matter and also will impact our longstanding goal of striving for a Europe whole and free. What happens and how this crisis gets handled does have direct ramifications for certainly other global situations that are also afoot. Russia's current military actions in Crimea, if coupled with an anemic Western response, will also deal a grave blow to freedom, to international law, to so many uh, aspects of our alliance that bind us together. Crucial is also at this time the fact that the United States and Europe have to also be thinking about a strategy. Central Europe is a key component of that strategy for addressing the concerns of 
the neighborhood and of what's happening in Ukraine. And by the way, in this regard, you know, we remind ourselves, what binds the alliance? You'll be having panels that will be focusing on this, but the transatlantic alliance that is bound together, we're bound by security, by a commitment to also prosperity and the welfare of our citizens that's grounded in freedom. And coupled, of course, with that steady spread of freedom and liberty to all. We all have a vital interest in not seeing that foundation reversed in any capacity. So here, also in an alliance context, you know, there's also the element of what are the components of security. There's, of course, the recommitment to NATO. When you look at Central Europe and, and the countries as part of Central Europe, they are part of NATO. I hear now many of the countries calling and reminding about Article 5 in the event that it's necessary to be reminded about Article 5 and its rededication to all members. Also, there's been the appeal for exercises in the neighborhood. I mention this because this was an initiative that's come particularly from Central Europe about the show of force on the ground and in the neighborhood. And then also there's the issue of constant communication, absolutely essential here because it's not only in the context of our alliance, but it's also political communication. As the ambassador said, certainly the Visegrad Four uh, have always had a very firm voice, a voice about what happens in the neighborhood and about its future. Let me step back and, if you don't mind, put the current situation in Ukraine in context. In other words, I want to put forth a few general points that I think are important to keep in mind. The first is, is, is that the whole issue about Ukraine, we read a lot about what Ukraine is. At Ukraine has always been ethnically diverse. Does that mean that it is divided and a split is imminent? Well, I would remind you that when Ukraine obtained its independence, by the way, there was a referendum. And if you look at the referendum and the results of that referendum, actually all parts of Ukraine, including the eastern part, were completely in support of the independence of Ukraine as a holistic entity and country. There was no diversion from that. Secondly, I'm straining to think about any kind of examples of secessionist movements that have taken place in Ukraine. I don't know of any in this regard, meaning in terms of, and I will move Crimea, Crimea, as David mentioned, has talked about its independence. But by the way, Crimea has talked about its independence always in the context of being affiliated with and part of Ukraine. So going back to the referendum, let me make the point that here, it, I remember when Ukraine got its independence, there was the referendum. There was also an assessment that was done, a governmental assessment by the National Intelligence Council at the time, that I remember there was a big article in the New York Times that talked about Ukraine and that there were prospects for, you know, a potential split. You know, Ukraine got its independence and up to this time, it has been united. It has worked out issues from within. 
I'm removing aside the state of Ukraine at the moment, only speaking about the ethnic component of, of Ukraine. I think it's important, though, to remind ourselves and to look at what has happened over these years, because I think what we are witnessing now, uh, just about every leader uh, has talked about the trumped-up charges. Uh, Secretary Kerry the other day was talking about the trumped-up concerns that have been registered as to why you have military uh, on the ground uh, 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 and forcing a referendum uh, in Crimea. Russia's aggression in Ukraine also quite significantly constitutes a breach of international law. You know many of the different documents that have been cited. One that I'd like to mention, and then another, OSCE. Why OSCE? Because one of the solutions that has been forth, put forth for the crisis in Crimea was bring in monitors. Have the monitors come in to look at the allegations about the concerns of those Russians, the ethnic Russians and Russian-speaking um, um, uh, Ukrainians in Crimea. You know they've been blocked at the border. They haven't been able to get in, despite international pressure and also countries of Central Europe also embracing this very reasonable approach. But I want to flag another issue that hasn't been well addressed and actually, uh, I co-authored an op-ed on, and that is the Budapest Memorandum. And why the Budapest Memorandum? You may recall that when Ukraine got its independence, by the way, it was a significant nuclear power. And Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. The Budapest Memorandum was among the U.S., the U.K., and Russia. And if you look at the terms of the memorandum, all three signed it, it calls for in return for giving up those nuclear weapons, the guarantee of territorial integrity and the sovereignty of Ukraine. Well, we are witnessing a violation directly of that particular memorandum. And what are the ramifications? Think about it. I mentioned about the global ramifications of this crisis. It does matter about the neighborhood, but it also goes beyond. Why? Because there are countries like Iran that are looking at nuclear issues. Then you have, in another part of the world, Japan, also looking at issues playing out in the Pacific. This literally undercuts the spirit, not only of the specifics of that memorandum, but also of the whole issue of a nuclear uh, uh, nonproliferation. A grave concern. Let me also share with you a, a quote that was just uh, in the Washington Post the other day in an op-ed, if you read it, by Senator Menendez. I thought it was an interesting quote. It said, only a few months ago this was said, quote, we must stop using the language of force and return to the path of civilized diplomatic and political settlement. You know who said that? President Putin. It was in his letter that was published in the New York Times about Syria. And it's worth reminding ourselves of what was said in the context of Syria, but is not applicable and being uh, uh, addressed and having the same consistency 
of approach in this particular uh, case. And also, just one other broad point I want to put forth. David talked about polls. And you know, you look at polls and you wonder, well, what do they mean and what's the impact? But I can't help myself in at least mentioning one that has gone around. And this is according to the state-owned All-Russia Center for the Study of Public Relations. 73% of Russians, when they were polled, they said that they were against intervention in Ukraine. I thought that that poll was worth citing in the mix of polls. So when you look at uh, this context, let me mention two other points regarding the developments of what's happened on the ground. When you look back at last year, when President, then President Yanukovych had indicated that he was not going to sign the accession uh, uh, agreement uh, with the EU, we know that protests broke out. They broke out because of the desire to move forward with that agreement. I think it's important to underscore the reason why was because if Ukraine moved forward with that agreement, Ukraine would have to undertake a series of austerity measures, which in turn would bring out about significant economic and political reforms. This was crucial for the country. People demonstrated in the streets because they wanted to see these reforms take foot. And the second point, which you also heard by David this morning, the other main factor that brought young people and others out in the street was corruption. The desire to see significant change take place in Ukraine and really to take the necessary steps in order to correct it. Fast forward to February, we know that uh, the Polish foreign minister, along with the French and the German, had uh, sat down with uh, then-President Yanukovych to try to work out an arrangement uh, uh, between the protesters and with Yanukovych's government going forward. I don't know if all of you took a look at that document. That document called for elections for this year, by the end of this year, uh, free and fair elections. It called for also holding accountable all of those complicit in the deaths, the some hundred deaths that occurred in the protests. It also called for economic reforms, uh, specific economic reforms. I'm mentioning this because, as you may recall, actually coming out of that, the ministers announced that the document had been signed, and it was signed by them and also by uh, then-President Yanukovych. Well, two things happened after that. One, it's worth noting that also in this mix, by the way, Russian Ambassador Lukin was also on site. He did not support or sign this uh, document, but he was present there during these, the, these discussions. And then secondly, Yanukovych, as you may recall, he signed this document, and then do you recall there were a couple of days where no one could find him? He disappeared, and then he ended up in Moscow. I mention this because these developments occurred before, by the way, the government, interim government, took hold in Ukraine. It basically had an agreement, but then President Yanukovych fled. Um, he fled on his own accord. In this context, what is the agenda forward for Ukraine? 
Ukraine basically has an agenda that in many ways builds upon those points. Holding elections on May 25, the government now is interim. And by the way, uh, this interim government has set up an anti-corruption bureau. And some of you may or may not know the person who heads that bureau is the journalist who was beaten up, um, in, in fact, when she was reporting, in fact, on uh, President Yanukovych's mansion. She was brutally beaten. She was in many newspapers in the West. She is the interim head of that uh, corruption uh, bureau. But the holding of elections, undertaking and a commitment for reforms, economic reforms, this is the kind of mandate that has been put forward. Let me mention two other elements that I think matter here. Why does Ukraine matter? This is a question that I at least have read and seen come forward in different uh, uh, commentaries. Why does it matter to the United States and to Europe, no less to Central Europe? It matters, first of all, it is a country of 46 million. It is a country the size of France. It's a country that's at the crossroads of Europe and Asia. And we know that if Ukraine's economy tanks, and we know that it is in dire straits in terms of its economy, that that will have major reverberations, certainly for the neighborhood, Central Europe, the bordering countries, but it will have a spillover effect even beyond Central Europe in terms of Europe as a whole. Having a stable, a secure, a, uh, a country like Ukraine able to make its own choices and to be economically viable and to choose its own economic path is in everyone's interests. And let me also just uh, uh, mention another important data point, and that is the whole question here about the uh, scale and the scope of uh, Russian actions. Um, we have witnessed what has taken place in Crimea. The other day, the foreign minister of Sweden, Carl Bildt, tweeted that he noticed that there were movements on troop, Russian troop movements on the border uh, of Ukraine again. And the question here is really, you know, what does this portend? And in that regard, Central Europe does have a very vital role. It is on that border and that neighborhood. And it is incumbent upon those countries, certainly, to reach out, reach out in the context of NATO, to reach out in the context of the EU, and to make its views, know, views known. Also, by the way, it's worth noting, the, in Ukraine, 17% approximately are uh, ethnic Russian. Did you know that in Latvia, the figure is 27%? Uh, and in Estonia, it's 26%. It's worth taking a note that the number of ethnic Russians in Ukraine are actually, in terms of the percentage, lower than in um, uh, 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 Latvia and Estonia. I have a few final points to make, and that is, how do we go from here? Let me address the broad and then the specific. First is, it's absolutely essential that the West be unified in its response. The response must be strong. It has to be resolute. Russia must know that 
its actions are not going to be tolerated. That's Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity is in fact sacrosanct, as Secretary Rice said the other day in her op-ed piece. It's not negotiable. But there is a broader challenge also impacting the future of Europe and the future of Ukraine. And I mentioned that at the beginning and I'll mention it again. And that is the fact that it should be able to and free to make its own choices, which is part of the mandate of a Europe whole and free. If we don't have a strong response, our own actions are going to be not only having an impact in this region, but it will also be taken note of by dictators, by tyrants, by extremists in other parts of the world. They'll be emboldened by a weak response. And the very essence of our values will, in fact, be discredited and called into question. What are the specifics that could be done? Well, here I would pick out just two that I think, and there are many, and you've heard a number from David this morning, but I pick out two. The first is the freezing of the assets. I pick that out because, you know, really to go to the heart of what a lot of this is about in terms of crime, corruption, that I think will have a great deal of, um, of, uh, of uh, uh, impact uh, where it should. In fact, Anders Oslin, some of you may know his name, he wrote, in fact, that just in the last uh, days, uh, when there were troops that were amassed on the border and then after, remember, President Putin gave his press conference, did you know that the stock market index, the Russian trading system stock market index, plummeted by 12% in particular, and the prices of the stocks of large state-owned companies plunged? He said, quote, the Gazprom stocks fell by 15% and the state bank VTB by 20%. The ruble fell by one9 percent in relation to the U.S. dollar. I just cite this. Anders is an economist. I'm not an economist. But just in that small span of time, there was a consequence and an impact. Secondly, you'll be having a full panel on energy. I think that's an important area to be looking at. And there again, going back to the importance of the alliance and Central Europe, they have a direct role in this because they're impacted by it. In the case of Ukraine, Ukraine, 70 percent of uh, Ukraine's um, uh, energy supplies and natural gas is gotten from Russia. Europe is also very much well affected, as you all know. This is an area that the United States can readily address. And as we've witnessed in recent days, many Europeans have been focusing on this particular option um, uh, much more closely than had been the case. So in conclusion, I think that this is a very grave time. Uh, I think it is a time of peril. And it's a time in which the West must stand up and it must have strong, decisive actions. Otherwise, as I mentioned, we will send not only the wrong message for the neighborhood and have the consequences that we will have to bear if we do not not take such united, strong action in this crisis situation. Thank you very much, and let me end there. Thank you.
Please sit down. Because um, before, uh, um, <clears throat> I will be asking uh, audience uh, if uh, one or two questions. But let me, before that, come back to a couple of points to you, you raised. You, you mentioned, you referred to the Budapest Agreement, where they have, Russia has also guaranteed the, the uh, territorial integrity of Ukraine and also a quote from Putin's uh, New York op-ed, where he said everything has to be uh, <clears throat> done, uh, resolved by uh, discussions around the table. And here comes what I have said earlier, that precisely because of this, they always need somebody who calls them in to come to send in the troops, because that's showing, you know, we are in paper for the agreement, but there is somebody who has called, called us in to, uh, to march in to, to defend the people. So that the two things go together in, in, in their mind. And who was the person who called them in? This time it was uh, Yanukovych, you know, wrote a letter. Um, so, you know, the, um, the um, tactic here. The other thing is you, you raised the question on the languages. This is very important because the borders in, 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 in the whole of Europe, but mostly in Central and Eastern Europe, um, <clears throat> were, became the results of um, kingdoms, lost and won, won wars, etc. And the borders were not drawn according to languages. They were, it came out of a different process. So you have, you have um, uh, languages, in, in minority languages in, in the various countries. And this is a very bad example if you say that you, know, you, have, uh, you can come in to defend uh, 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 that particular ethnic group. And uh, as you mentioned, Latvia and Estonia, they are particularly nervous about it because they have a very large, very large um, <clears throat> uh, Russian minority. And the last point I wanted to make, and this is also a question, uh, <clears throat> that um, how about the economic sanctions? The economic interest of the West, US and also some Western countries, is Russia so intertwined that uh, you know any any sanction that will come will hurt this uh, the, the, the certain companies, and um, so uh, I will not be surprised that uh, we will end up with very little uh, economic sanctions. But this is one question I have: What do you think? How if it, how effective these uh, sanctions will be? Well, I <clears throat> chose uh, freezing assets, and I chose energy knowing that this question of economic sanctions, it's been an issue that's already been raised. Uh, many in Europe have cited the fact that the volume of their trade with Russia is uh, much greater than that of the United States. But having said that, personally, I am a proponent not just only of, uh, of uh, freezing assets, but I am of economic sanctions. Uh, uh, I think that uh, you have to uh, look at your actions. And you can't just divorce uh, trade relationships and hold them completely in isolation to other uh, developments going on. You heard a very compelling presentation by David Satter, and a very core point of his presentation was about the kind of corruption and crime that underpins uh, 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 you know, uh, Ukraine and uh, uh, Russia today. So the question is, by the way, for the good of business, you have to step back and ask, do you want to actually have 
vibrant business opportunities uh, based on transparency, openness, or are you going to have trade relationships and uh, you know, foreign direct investment that uh, is compromised in certain ways? Now, you could say that's very easy for me to say because, you know, every country has its own set of issues that they have to worry about in terms of their own population. But I have no doubt that when countries take a look at what opportunities exist, like in the energy realm, for example, there are alternatives for business. And I think that's what the answer is here. I think that the West really needs to sit down and to look at what are these economic alternatives. What are the kinds of alternate paths that can be seized here and where basically uh, 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 you uh, still have uh, uh, you know, populations and countries that are able to benefit from relationships. But at the same time, I think it's also worth taking a look at what also exists at this time and that um, really uh, uh, you know, needs to be revisited. Thank you. Let's have one or two questions. Yes? Okay. A lady, yes. I was going to say, I think we're getting a signal. So I think we're getting one question and we're going to move Thank to the you. panel. I have a bit of scary question. My name is Natalia Lakiz. I am from US Ukraine Foundation. I am a lead expert on Ukraine and I follow events in Ukraine almost 24 7. So um, my question is from a bit different sphere military sphere. Mm -hmm. um, we have now, you, you're right, that situation in Ukraine changes every day. And now we have uh, more than 80,000 um, uh, Russian troops along the eastern border, border of Ukraine. We have 30,000 in Crimea. Okay. Ukraine started two military trainings in the west and in the east, NATO trainings in um, uh, Black Sea, uh, so um, I value your, your opinion as an expert on Ukraine and continued supporter of Ukraine at different levels in the government. So is it just a demonstration of muscles or it's a real preparation to local, regional or, God forbid, uh, well, world war? Well, you know, there's a, a precedent here, and I think you're going to hear about it on the panel who's coming right up. Uh, so as I answer this question, um, Georgia. Uh, you know, when you look at uh, Georgia, you know, when troops came in uh, and uh, uh, Russian troops came in and took Abkhazia and South Ossetia, you know, uh, there's uh, a question as to whether they would have gone further. This goes to my point about the need for a strong Western response. And I think the belief was that there was a strong response that stemmed potentially the tide of uh, troops going further. I think everyone is on alert, hence my mentioning Foreign Minister Carl Bildt. And I think just simply put, I think that what we need to be concerned about right now is, and I'll repeat it the last time, having a strong, resolute, united response from the West that is grounded in economic, financial, and military options here. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Paula. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, 